with me to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to begin by reading from verse 1 through verse 14. And uh, the focus of our attention tonight is going to be in verses 9 through 14. So that's the text that we're going to be looking at this evening. Let's begin by reading uh, these verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was, first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it's, it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, and then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, in the previous weeks, we, in talking about verses 1 through 8, we saw that the nations are pictured as a great sea, and it is the God of heaven that blows the winds across that sea, and he causes the storms to rise. He causes the waves to rise and fall. And what we see happening as the, as the waves of this great sea rise and fall, we see nations rise up and become powerful and conquer their neighbors. And then they wane, and their neighbors become powerful and conquer them. And so we see this 
uh, as we see the kingdoms of Babylon and the kingdom of Medo-Persia and then Greece and Alexander the Great come on the scene and then the empire of Rome, this fourth beast, beast that particularly we're going to see in the rest of this chapter uh, is fascinating to Daniel. This beast is different uh, than the others. And Daniel was quite uh, taken with this beast and the implications of this terrible, cruel uh, beast that he sees in his night vision. Now, in verse 9, we come uh, to the scene where Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. Now, God gives us prophecy to explain to us the real battle that we are in, who the real king and power in this world is, and how things are going to be in the end. And prophecy gives us a view of history from God's perspective. It helps us to understand things as they will be and what uh, God's purposes are and where he is leading this world and his people. And all of this is designed to strengthen our faith and our hope. And when I say hope, I don't mean our wishful thinking. I mean our hope as the New Testament means it when it says our confidence, our certainty uh, that we have uh, in our future. And so that's what prophecy is supposed to do. And Daniel is being revealed these things so that he can get the picture of what is really going on behind the, the world scene. And in this vision of beasts, we've already seen statements that indicate that these beasts are not independent and they're not autonomous. We've seen that the heavens stir up the nations to rise and fall, that the lion has its wings removed and its whole disposition manipulated. The bear is commanded and directed. The leopard is given dominion. And so we see very plainly that there is a power that is at work in these nations and over these nations. Now we see it here in verse 9 when we read, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Thrones are set up, and there's a heavenly court. Now, if you'll hold your place in Daniel, I want you to turn over to Revelation chapter 4. And I want to suggest to you that we see a parallel scene here. We've already seen one uh, in earlier weeks, parallel in Revelation. We are going to see others. But let me draw your attention now to Revelation chapter 4. And let's look at beginning in verse 1. Now, keep in mind what we just read in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, we read that thrones were placed, the Ancient of Days uh, took his seat. Now, read with me here in Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had appearance as an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now let me pause for a moment and remind you that there in Daniel 7, there were many thrones uh, in that scene, but the Ancient of Days takes uh, his seat in his throne. But there are other thrones in that scene there. Reading on here, verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, 
which are the seven spirits of God. Let's pause again. There in Daniel 7, we see that God's, uh, the Ancient of Days uh, throne is a fiery throne, and it has wheels of fire around it. And then verse 6 says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And I just want to contrast what we see there uh, in that last statement. The sea of glass there that's like crystal is, is completely smooth. Everything is calm in heaven. There are no raging winds. There's no chaos. Uh, there's uh, no uncertainty about what is happening uh, there around the throne of heaven as there are with these other beastly nations that we see in the world. And we see quite the con- contrast there. No rise and fall of the, of the waves. Perfect calm as God sits on his throne. He rules over everything, all places and at all times. Now, back in Daniel 7, let's consider this, this phrase, the ancient of days. It is a, a phrase that we don't see uh, in the scriptures at other places. And whenever God takes a name to himself, no matter what that name is, it is always uh, something that reveals God's nature, his character, his attributes. God never takes names to himself that are like titles. I mean, my, my name has no significance uh, to what kind of person I am. Actually, it's a French word that means blackbird for whatever that's worth. And so I don't know what significance that would have uh, to me personally. But, it, but all the names of God have significance. And when we see this title, the Ancient of Days, uh, it means something to us. Now, it, what it should mean to us and be indicative to us is this. His reign is eternal, never-ending. His throne and His kingdom do not rise and fall. It goes on and on and on. Let me look, uh, if you will, look with me at Psalm. Or I might just very quickly read these, but you're welcome to turn with me. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2 says, Lord, you have made your dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Uh, Psalm 93, 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 145, 13. I'm just giving you a few selective psalms, verses from the psalms. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. And so what we see the psalmist talking about there in those various occasions is that God's throne is forever. It is from ancient days. For that to be true... Then the Ancient of Days, this one sitting on his throne, must of necessity be an eternal one, a self-existing one. And we know that is exactly what the name of God is. I am that I am is his name that he reveals himself as. And let me remind you also that in John chapter 8, verses 58, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ says, Before Abraham was, I am. And he makes his connection to that uh, that uh, ever self-existent one, the eternally present one, this one uh, who spans all generations. He is the one who is 
and is not becoming. Uh, if we were to talk about what is different between ourselves and God and how different are we? And we might say things like, I have little, almost no power and God has uh, infinite power. We might say, I have little and almost no knowledge and God uh, knows everything. Well, let me, let me just say to you that one of the things that is one of the most significant ways that we are different from God is the very fact that God is and we are becoming. And it is a vast difference, something that's even hard to get our mind around, that God never changes, at least from what we know about the universe that he has made and, in, and the, react, the interaction that we have with God in the creation, in the created world. God never changes. He knows the end for the beginning. He won't be surprised tomorrow to find out what happens because he knows right now he is there right now. He is forever present with what's going to be tomorrow and the next day and the next day in time just as much as he is present right now with all the things that happened uh, in the past. He is the forever present one, the one who is and is not becoming. We, on the other hand, are constantly, constantly, almost every minute, changing and becoming and, and being different from what we are. Hopefully, by the grace of God, this becoming that is happening to us is sanctification and being brought to be more and more uh, like the God uh, that created us. But this one is, uh, is unaffected by the length of days. He is ancient, and he is present, and he is future. And kingdoms come and go, but our God outlasts them all. His kingdom will not pass away. And he is the one who rules inside of and outside of history. Now, the description of him that we have uh, here in verse 9 is that his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Now, white clo clothing, I think we can, uh, without too much uh, uh, scratching our head, can understand that it is a picture of purity, of holiness. Uh, we see that emblem uh, used in other places. You remember that the priests were dressed in linen, white linen in the Old Covenant. Um, we see in Revelation uh, people who are dressed in white. And so we know that it is a symbol of holiness and purity. What about white hair? What do you think the significance of white hair is? Remember, we're in Sunday school mode tonight, so if you speak up, that's fine. In fact, I would be glad if you spoke up. What's the significance of white hair? What should it mean? What's that? Wisdom. It should be a symbol of of someone who is old and therefore worthy of our respect uh, and deference. Uh, it, it, it is those kinds of things attached to this symbol of white hair. It is a, it is a picture of wisdom and maturity and experience. And this one is due, that is the Ancient of Days. He is due the reverence and the respect that comes with the dignity and wisdom of age. And he is, in fact, the, excuse me, <clears throat> he is, in fact, the ultimate expression of this, the most ancient one. Uh, he is the most worthy of honor and respect. And note the difference between this throne, holy, wise, 
honorable and the thrones of the nations who are beast. Quite a contrast between the rules of this world and the ancient of days on his throne. Now, our verse tells us that this throne has fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. Now, when we see things like fiery flames in the scriptures, we, uh, I think, naturally and rightly turn our attention to thoughts of judgment, uh, things being uh, consumed by fire in judgment. You remember Deuteronomy 4.24 says that our God is a consuming fire in the warning there to Israel. It's repeated in Hebrews 12.29, whereas Christians, we're reminded of the very same thing. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, it says its wheels were burning fire. This throne has wheels. Um, God's throne also has wheels in that strange and mysterious apocalyptic vision of Ezekiel 1, who, by the way, Ezekiel is also prophesying at this time, same uh, period of, of time. He is also in exile in Babylon along with Daniel. If you want to have a headache, let me give you a project to do that will give you one. Read Ezekiel 1 and figure out exactly what that vision looks like. Are any of you familiar with Ezekiel 1 and that vision? I'm not going to read it because it covers the whole chapter. But it is wheels. It is wheels within wheels. It is creatures beside the wheels. It is things above and things below, and people that do such things have tried to paint pictures of it, and none of them look the same. And when I look at the pictures, I'm not even sure that they especially look like what I envision when I, I read Ezekiel 1. But it is, it is a, 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 one of those things in scriptures that is just a real mystery uh, to try to just get your mind around about what the image actually is. Uh, it is a very strange, strange thing. But one of the prominent features of Ezekiel 1, and then what we read here, is this idea of wheels. Why wheels? Wouldn't it be better for the ancient of days throne to be like on a giant rock? Some, you know, place with a, a solid and certain foundation where it couldn't be shaken and it couldn't be moved. So why, why this picture uh, of the, the ancient of days throne being uh, a throne with wheels? Well, I think the answer is actually uh, uh, pretty simple. It's this. This throne can move anywhere in this world. There is no getting away from this, this throne and its power. Remember that God's people are in exile in Babylon, far away from Israel and Jerusalem. They have always been taught all of their life that God's throne is where? In Jerusalem, right? And that his special presence is where? In the temple there in Jerusalem. So that's, this is what they've been taught their whole life. And now here they are. They are in a, a foreign land. Are they separated from God? Is he far away from them in a distant land, far away in Jerusalem? Does he rule here in Babylon as well as he did there in Israel, when they were there in Israel. 
Well, the answer to all that is that in this vision, we see that God's throne has these wheels. It moves around the earth. And this throne is not limited to any one location. It moves throughout the whole world. And, and, and so God's people can be assured that no matter where they are, no matter what nation or kingdom or place or time or people or geographical location, all of that doesn't matter. God, the Ancient of Days, uh, is on his throne. And wherever they are, he rules. Now, this whole scene about the Ancient of Days and his throne is a scene uh, that should be for us a scene of majesty and awe. Anybody have any comments or questions about that before we move to verse 10? Anything at all about the Ancient of Days and his throne? Okay, if not, let's look at verse 10 through 12. A throne of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, a river of fiery judgment is flowing from this throne of the Ancient of Days. There is court. There are records. The books are open. What does it always mean in the Scriptures when books are open? It always means the same thing. There's getting ready to be judgment. And so that's what we see in this scene in heaven. Judgment is going on in heaven. Notice in verse 10 that it says that he sat in judgment. And in verse 11... As I looked, the beast was killed, burned by fire. And where is that fire coming from? It is coming from the throne as God executes his judgment. The throne of the ancient of days, the throne of the ancient of days is the place that uh, God's judgment is coming from and the destruction of these nations are happening because of what is flowing from this, this throne. There will be great judgment at the end of the, of the end of the world. We know that the scriptures tell us that over and over again. But the scene here in Daniel 7 is that there is also judgment going on now. That during the days of Babylon, God is judging. And, he ha and judgment is flowing forth from his throne. And in the days of Medo-Persia, and in the days of Greece, and in the days of Rome, as these kingdoms unfold, as they, uh, as they are wicked uh, in the life of their nation, God judges them. So it was with all the kingdoms of this world. Notice in verse 12 that part of their judgment is that their dominion was taken away. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there an implication from this to our nation? Nations that are in our, in the, in, in our time in history. Can nations do Anything they want. What do you think Saddam Hussein thought about his security about one month before what we all know came to be his, his end? I suspect he was, thought he was the most secure uh, person in the whole world. And then suddenly we know what happens to bring an end 
uh, to his kingdom and his reign. And so it is throughout history we see this happen over and over again. But what about, are there any implications for us personally? God is in heaven. Judgment is going on. There are consequences. God reaches out into sober history with the fires of his judgment, and things happen. And so I think we need to pause when we see this kind of scene in heaven and think about this uh, on a personal level as well. Are, are we uh, subject to the judgment of God because of our rebellion as these nations are in rebellion against God uh, and his people? And so uh, there are national and personal implications to what we see in this scene of the Ancient of Days. One other observation about this scene before we move on to the Son of Man is this. There are, a, there are thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands time ten thousands stood before him. Now turn once more to Revelation, this time to 5.11, and see if we find this language familiar to what we're reading in Daniel. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, which would be like ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands. And so we see in the scene in heaven in Revelation, we see exactly the same picture uh, that we see in the vision of the Ancient of Days there in Daniel chapter 7. I would suggest that this is an indication of the vastness of his kingdom and of his resources. What is 10,000 times 10,000? Uh, is that like 100 million? Is that anybody math-wise want to correct my, my math? Is that 100 million? Now, think about that in terms of the ancient world where probably the largest standing armies that we were ever uh, there were like 100,000 or 150,000. Those were vast armies. Even today, in the largest nation on this earth, population-wise, which would be China, um, and they have the largest standing army in the world. How big do you think it is? Anybody have uh, even a wild guess? It is about two million. Two million. And God says in ancient times, when 100,000 was a gigantic number that... People couldn't even get their mind around uh, that there were a hundred million at his disposal in his kingdom. And so it is a huge uh, number for us to see here attributed to God and his resources in his kingdom. Now, what we're going to see next in the book of Daniel, any questions about the ancient of days, his throne and what we see there as we move into the son of man? Okay, if not. The Son of Man. We're going to see in this next section introduced into this scene of heaven in verses 13 and 14. This, this fascinating and controversial vision of the Son of Man. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this vision that he has is that clouds are often a symbol of theophanies. A theophany is just an appearance of God. Uh, clouds are often present in connection with God's presence. God is surrounded by clouds. He moves on the clouds. Let me show you just a few verses. Again, in the Psalms, Psalm eighteen eleven. Psalm 18, verse 11. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Psalm 97, 2. Psalm 97, 2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 104, 3. Psalm 104, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19.1. Just one other one. And there are other references like this. I'm picking out just the most obvious ones. Isaiah 19.1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And so what we see is we see God surrounded with clouds. We see him riding on the clouds. The clouds are like his chariot, and, with, and, and it is that way in other scriptures as well. Now, note two things about this person who appears in Daniel's vision. And the first is that he is riding on the clouds of heaven, and who does that? God does that. It is God that rides on the clouds. In fact, it is interesting that one of the rabbinical designations for the Messiah, for the Messiah is cloud rider or cloud man in the rabbinical writings about Messiah. And so uh, this, this one that we see in this vision is doing what only God does. And yet the second thing that we see about him is that he is like a son of man. And so he is doing only what God can do, but he is like the son of man. These other kingdoms and kings have all been beastly. But this king and his kingdom, this kingdom of the son of man, will be humane and beneficent. And instead of bringing cruelty and devastation, this one will bring, will bring peace and well-being. Now, I hope that we know who this son of man is. It is Jesus Christ. And so in case there's any mystery about it, this is a, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that this person is connected here in Daniel or chapter 7. Note that this person is connected to his people. It's very interesting how in, in this chapter 7 we see this. In uh, chapter 7 and verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. But look at verse 18. In verse 18 it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. In verse 22. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for, and, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the, the time came when the saints 
possessed the kingdom. And then down in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. And so it is a kingdom that is given to the Son of Man. But then in the rest of the chapter, it is given to his people. It is given to the saints. It is given to the people of God. And so we have, I would suggest to you here, uh, we have uh, a, a picture of what is very clear to us in the New Testament, the doctrine of union with Christ, that we are joined to him. He is the head. We are the body. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are in Christ over and over and over again in the New Testament scriptures, and I suggest that that is what we see here in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Now, this title, the Son of Man, was for Jesus his favorite self-designation. This is what he called himself more than any other title in the Gospels, more than Messiah, more than Son of God, or any other. He used this title to apply it to himself. Now, why do you think that this particular title would be the title that Jesus would choose uh, to apply to himself over and over again in the Scriptures? Does anybody have any idea? Just, I'm just curious. Anything come to mind about why Jesus, more than any other title, would take this title uh, to be his designation, his self-designation? What do you think that might be? That would certainly be part of this. Anything else come to mind? It's humility. And so, what Jesus is, certainly, if we say the Son of God, it is implied that he's divine, right? And so, when he takes upon himself the title of the Son of Man, certainly one of the implications of that is that he is, he is making a statement that I am truly human and he's identifying with humanity and with with his people let me suggest some other things to you as well and and, and one of them is daniel chapter 7 jesus christ when he uses this title and informed jews that know their scriptures hear him say that he is the son of man and use this title for himself over and over again they cannot help but have come to mind Daniel chapter 7 and this remarkable vision that Daniel has of the scene in heaven and the Son of Man there with the Ancient of Days in a, in, a, in, a, in a position and in a place, an exalted place that no other person has ever had and ever, has ever been presented in. And so he's taken to himself by implication everything that we see and would say about the Son of Man in Daniel Chapter 7. Let me suggest another reason as well. The Jews had a well-developed and defective idea about what the Messiah was supposed to be and do. The term Messiah had connotations and it had baggage. What was the Messiah going to do? Drive Rome out? Put the Gentile nations under the thumbs of Israel. Restore national Israel to prominence and prosperity. 
That is what Messiah was going to do. And so if Jesus were to go around and just take to himself the title of Messiah in the context of the way everybody, all of his contemporaries, took it and, and understood it, then he, he, would have, he would have taken to himself baggage and things that simply weren't true about what he was doing in his kingdom and in his ministry. And so I would suggest to you that Jesus uses this more ambiguous, less defined title. And he defines it for himself by the way he uses it as he, as he applies it to himself. Jesus, with his own words, will shape what it means to be the Son of Man and to be the true Messiah. Now, he uses this term in two very distinctive ways. And he uses it a number of times in the Gospels. And those two distinctive ways are this. First of all, he, he uses it in terms of his suffering. Let, let me just, uh, I wrote down in my notes these verses uh, so I don't have to look them up. Just quickly, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Matthew eight twenty. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, Matthew seventeen twelve. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, Mark 9.31. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, Mark 10.33. And that's just selective uh, statements that are parallel throughout uh, all of the Gospels. And so he uses this term to draw, in particular, uh, attention to the fact that Messiah... The Son of Man, this unique one from Daniel 7, uh, is a suffering person, which is something that the Jews don't understand and that the prophets always will miss. Uh, it was a mystery to the prophets how the Messiah could be the great and glorious Messiah and conqueror and, and king, and yet there were so many passages in the Old Testament that indicated that he would suffer, and that was a mystery to the prophets as they looked at their own uh, prophetic word that God had given them. Now, the other way that, God, that uh, Christ uses this term, son of man, uh, that is distinctive to his use, and he does it over and over again, is in connection with his exaltation and his glorious return. Let me again read you some verses. This time I selected verses from Luke, but they're all through the Gospels. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, Luke 12, 40. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day, Luke 17, 24. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, Luke 21, uh, 27. And so we see these two things that Christ takes this term and identifies them with. The suffering one, but then also the one who's going to return in great power and glory and majesty uh, at some future day. And so Jesus is able to define himself as both the suffering and the triumphant son of man in his use of this term. And so the son of man in the book in Daniel chapter 7 it's like a man. He is a man, but he is so much more. Now, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1, just one more parallel I'd like to point out to you. You remember that description of the Ancient of Days? 
Then you remember that second part, the vision of the Son of Man, the one who is like the Son of Man. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Does that sound familiar? It should. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so we have this picture in Revelation chapter 1 of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's described here as one like the Son of Man. But then the description that we have is exactly like who? White. Hair of white. It's exactly the picture that we have of the Ancient of Days. Now, let me ask you a question. Did John get confused when he was reading Daniel? And did he get the Ancient of Days mixed up with the Son of Man? And I think the answer is no. John sees the Son of Man in that vision exactly as the vision of the Ancient Days because our Lord Jesus Christ is exactly the same as the Ancient of Days. He is God, very God, and he has all of his attributes. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Let me draw this to your attention. You may be familiar with this verse already. Hebrews 1, 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is that Jesus Christ, when it says he is the radiance of the glory of God, our writer is saying that Jesus Christ is like the shining forth, the bursting forth of whatever the glory of God consists of, all the wonder and mystery and beauty of of God is bursting forth in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this second thing, which is what I really want to draw your attention to. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And what the writer is saying there is, if you could take God, and if you could squeeze him down to just the bare essentials and nature of what it means to be God, Jesus Christ is exactly that. That's what he's saying. And so when we see John say that the Son of Man has this, and he describes him in the same words, the same language that he described, that Daniel uses to describe the Ancient of Days, there's nothing wrong with that picture. Uh, he, he is the exact representation of his nature. Whatever God is, Jesus Christ is exactly that. And so that's the vision there of the Son of Man. It is ten till. So I'm going to stop because the next thing that uh, we need to talk about, and we don't have time to do it in just a couple of minutes, is that with the clouds of heaven, 
There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so the question is, that God willing we will discuss next time, is what is this event? What is actually happening here as the Son of Man uh, approaches the Ancient of Days and he's presented before him? And what's going on? And when did that happen? And that is the subject of controversy and debate, but I think it's also a glorious, glorious truth. And so we'll, uh, we'll trust that we can look at that next time. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer.